Welcome, everybody, to the Tag Your It podcast. I'm Ray Ray. And I am Dave. And he's on the phone. And if you look in your uh, lower right-hand side, we got that collar bubble. We're on the line with Mr. Dave tonight. Um, we're doing our pretty much our last live recording, aren't we, for the year? Yeah, this is it for the year, man. This is it. Well, I don't know how. I didn't count on these shows we did this year, but I think we did somewhere around 40 or so. Uh, we did have our 100th episode mm-hmm. meme bash and had a lot of cool people call in and uh, talk to us. That was cool. And uh, we're excited to do a, another year. It'll be, again, as I said, it'll be the third year of us podcasting, mm-hmm. which is pretty stinking cool. I never knew how long this was going to uh, last. So <laughs> it has it already surpassed uh, what I initially thought when I thought we would have basically a few shows to talk about the debate and that would be the end of it but there you go man <laughs> yeah she continues the tag your it train is still going and it'll go into next year as well because we will have some cool things um to go on but yeah next year we start um really not with a podcast but we start with a debate mr dave yep. and so we need to make sure <laughs> that you guys are getting that information out there we need to do better at getting that information out there but uh on the scroller on the live thing hopefully you guys saw um that uh we have that debate on January 6th. On It's about inerrancy. Is it total inerrancy or is it a scale or range of concepts? That's what's going to be debated between Dave, um, our, our own Tegurit, Dave Van Beber, and uh, Phil Kahlberg, which is a guy that has a, his own podcast. Um, so it'll be uh, hopefully well attended. And so, Dave, what's the, the other details on that? Yeah, it's going to be at the Southside Library Center there in Springfield starting at 630 um, the debate will be, um, oh, you know, it'll be a good back and forth. We definitely agree on a lot of things, but certainly have disagreements. And uh, especially when it comes to the objective nature of the doctrine of inerrancy. So mm-hmm. it should be a lot of fun. And I'm looking forward to getting to engage Phil. He's been an incredibly kind individual to work with. We've met together and talked about our debate. The format is going to be just a little bit different than. The debates that we do live on the podcast, it'll be a little bit longer, and there will be a Q&A, live Q&A time. So if you can't make it, it is going to be live casted mm-hmm. from the Library Center, and uh, hopefully it'll be good quality so everyone can follow it. Yeah, so it'll be yeah. a lot of fun. So that's going to be awesome. So we have spent... Um, the last bunch of episodes uh, talking about scripture. We've had you know a little issue that we had to talk about in a couple episodes, uh, kind of in between things. But we have wanted to end the year because of where we're beginning um, the year, and that is on the inerrancy of scripture. That's again what we just talked about. Dave's debating, so that's why um, we've hit the attributes of scripture, and so we're ending um, with what Dave will be debating about, which is inerrancy. So we've talked about, uh, I guess. Whoa, I, I'm getting picked Sorry up on that. that other line. <laughs> That's all right. Yeah. Were you uh, sharing or something? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I apologize. Yeah. Anyway, There's a bit yeah. of a delay in the uh, broadcast, so there you go. Yeah, well, if you were in the studio, I would have I would have known. I just want to make sure everything is good in between <laughs> everything here. So, Things are great, uh, man. 
Yeah, so this is, the, again, this is an awesome informal podcast that God has given us uh, the ability and the opportunity to, to do. So thank you guys for bearing with our little quirks and, and things that come up. It's it's amazing that we get to do this. So anyway, uh, yeah, so we, we talked about, um, I guess, the whole scan issue. We've talked about the sufficiency, the clarity, the authority, and the necessity of scripture. And, uh, you know, somebody placed that um, in a, an acrostic so that we can help remember those attributes of scripture. But there's also not in that, it had to be like eye scan if you were talking about like Mac things, uh, inerrancy. Inerrancy is a big deal. Um, inerrancy is uh, what happened, what we had to talk about. Um, you know, and in, in between the 1800s and the 1900s, um, which led to the conservative resurgence in the uh, Southern Baptist um, denomination. But it was, it was something that we don't even have to think about Baptist denomination. This is something that transcends the denominations is something that that uh, a lot of people faced. Um, there was a right and a left uh, turn, um, you know, and, and luckily the SBC got steered back. And that's why whenever we talked about the Baptist faith and message, you know, it, it really has a lot of that inerrancy language um, in that confession because of that. So the Baptist faith and message 2000 um, upped its inerrancy game um, on that. And that's why we talked about the other other attributes of scripture, but anyway, let's get into this inerrancy yeah, and, and, debate and tonight. And as we begin to jump into it, I do want to provide a little bit of clarity. I think it's really important that individuals understand that the doctrine of inerrancy is essentially the foundation and the basis for all other doctrines. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would also, I would just trace it all the way back to Genesis chapter three: "Hath God not said, God yeah. has spoken? God has spoken in a reliable way, in a clear way, and He's preserved His word for us, so yeah. we can trust the Bible." Um, the first time I was introduced to the doctrine of inerrancy was actually in a negative tone when I was attending Southwest Baptist University. I had a professor say, well, that stupid doctrine of inerrancy, which he was basically paraphrasing the words of N.T. Wright, who says mm-hmm. that silly American doctrine of inerrancy. And with that said, I don't think it's a silly doctrine. I believe, again, that it is the doctrine upon which all other doctrines hench. If mm-hmm. God hasn't spoken in such a way that we can believe it or understand it, then we have no basis for our faith. Well, um, if God hasn't think, told the truth, that's right. And if His truth is not knowable, then what are we doing? Yeah, and, and I really love what Bonson says about it. Uh, Bonson argues essentially resting upon the authority of Scripture of the Living God rather than independent human reasoning. The apologist must presuppose the truth of Scripture and lay siege to all other apostate positions. He says mm-hmm. that. And presuppositional apologetics. And so as presuppositionalists, again, we begin with this knowledge. We begin with this presupposition because we don't have anywhere to go if we don't have it, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Oh, yeah. It's a, it, it leads up to subjectivism, relativism, absurdity, um, whenever it comes to things. So it's either, you know, it's either God has spoken truthfully, authoritatively, out of necessity, sufficient, su- sufficiently and clearly, or, you know, just party i guess if but then again that's a logical conclusion that shouldn't even really mean anything because you know it is basically things are what they are we can't know them so we just make stuff up ourselves but you know then we're all independent autonomous creatures from each other and we can't hold anybody else accountable for any actions or anything so i mean just right. just think of the world view that um would or must arise um whenever we don't have a condescending um, lisping to us, God, that accommodates a message 
um, to get through to us so that we can know him, that we can live with him, be with him, um, know who we are, know how to operate so that we are not running around like chickens with our head cut off, you know? And so uh, I want to go ahead and begin with this real quick, Adam, because this is kind of where we left off before we came on the show. One of the contentions that you'll hear from Adam and I today, and you'll see it play out in the debate as we put this forward, is that the doctrine of inerrancy is essentially a multifaceted doctrine, right? Mm -hmm. It comes from the reality that God has spoken authoritatively, God has spoken clearly, he has Mm -hmm. spoken sufficiently, and he has spoken out of necessity. Those four doctrines produce what I would say is the foundation or the multifaceted aspect that allows us to come to the conclusion of the doctrine of inerrancy. In fact, the diamond falls apart without all of these pieces, Mm -hmm. right? It crumbles if you do not accept the reality of any of these other places. And so uh, I put that forward because I I believe that it's so important that we understand that as we jump out. And you'll see, again, as we continue in on the doctrine of inerrancy, you'll see how, in my mind, this doctrine is based upon the reality that God has spoken clearly. We can understand him. God has spoken as the ultimate authority. He is God. What scripture says, God says. And to disbelieve scripture is to disbelieve God. God has Mm. spoken because we have to hear from him. Otherwise, we have no basis to understand reality. And finally, God has spoken enough. He has said enough in his word for us to base our understanding of who he is and base uh, what we believe about reality. Yeah. So yeah. Exactly. So I mean, whenever it comes down um, to any of these, um, this, this multi-dimensional issue, this multifaceted issue, manifold issue, uh, whatever you're rendering that word, but there's the concept. Um, you know, it comes down to what what has Scripture said. Um, you know, if it's it's really interesting. Um, if somebody were to deny inerrancy, you know, but then they would use the Bible to say, hey, well, the Bible doesn't say it's inerrant. It's like, why are you going to the Bible <laughs> in the first place? Right. And that's a recognition um, that we need Scripture um, to move and to go forward. Um, so we go to Scripture and we find out, you know, 2 Timothy, again, 3, 16 and 17. This is a major, this is where we grasp this information that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And we've talked about that before. We've also uh, talked about, you know, Second uh, Peter one twenty one. no prophecy ne- or no prophecy ever came by the impulse of man, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And so this is a scriptural issue. You know, some, I think there's an uh, objection as there always is with words. Um, so well, allow it, me likewise yeah. to just provide a little bit of a historical context. Yeah. Uh, essentially we see around the 1850s, Um, A lot of German theologians saying Mm -hmm. that, uh, particularly Boltman and individuals like Schleiermacher, would say that God and his word is really not true. And there's some true things in scripture, but it's not a reliable testimony. This idea began to infiltrate not only in German theologian circles and German theological circles, but it made its way across the sea and was found uh, very clearly within the ideas that were being propagated even in Southern Baptist seminaries. Unfortunately, there were individuals who were saying that God's word wasn't objectively true. 
uh, that there were errors in it, that there were problems with it, that there were statements that could not be believed. And as this continues to build, we see what we would consider a a, a liberal or a leftward swing within not just uh, European theology, but then in American theology. Mm -hmm. Uh, This idea continues to make its way across evangelicalism as a whole. Uh, people in old in the old Princeton schools, such as B.B. Warfield, began to uh, really contend for what would be called at that time the infallibility of Scripture, mm-hmm. that Scripture cannot err. Uh, if you were to pick up and read um, Burkhoff, Systematic Theology, you'd also see he talked about the infallibility of Scripture, how Scripture is reliable. And this continues to build, uh, particularly to us as Southern Baptists, Adam, we see it kind of come to an apex uh, in about the 1970s when individuals like Paige Patterson uh, began to sit down and say, we've got to do something about our seminaries because our professors are not teaching the truth of God's word. Yeah. Uh, in 1957, a book was written called um, The Message of Genesis by Elliot. Now, Elliot was a professor at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and Elliot contended that the first 14 chapters of Genesis were not historical facts. They were simply figurative or illustrative ideas. They were not reality or grounded in objective truth, but they were illustrations. Uh, They were some type of an analogy or an allegory. In 1978, uh, a group of 300 evangelicals got together And they signed a statement called the 1978 Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy. And one thing we could do, which we're not going to do today, but I would encourage anyone who's listening to just Google the 1978 Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy, where the doctrine of inerrancy is fleshed out really, really clearly. Yeah, and but, then, but yeah, we need to realize that that you know that document that's not just a Southern Baptist document. That is right. an ecumenical document. Um, Greg Bonson being one of the signers, right? Yes, yes, with a multiplicity of other folks um, that we would still regard. Um, John MacArthur yeah. is a signer of that. J.I. Packer, R.C. Sproul, and Norman Geisler mm-hmm. were the three major framers of that document. They did the majority of the writing. And so, again, you can see that it was ecumenical in the way that it uh, handled the situation. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, whenever so we're thinking about this, you know, like we're, we're talking about a lot of history and a lot of a lot of things like this. But, you know, we need to understand, you know, if the Bible is inerrant, if that's where we go, if that's our authoritative thing, you know, the Bible talks about it. And, uh, you know, a lot of people will say, you know, they might say, well, inerrancy is not a word in the Bible. And so this is where we got to talk about, well, don't we have concepts um, wrapped up in words that are not necessarily in the Bible, uh, Trinity, um, incarnation, things like that. So, you know, we got to understand that we have deduced from Scripture, again, you know, 2 Timothy 3.16, uh, 2 Peter one twenty one, and multiplicity of um, areas where we can go and go, here's where Scripture is shown to be inerrant. The Old Testament texts and the New Testament texts both have, um, and it's not necessarily proof testing, but but exegetically going through the text, we can conclude um, that these things are, there is no error. There is that superintendedness of the Holy Spirit through um, men um, writing things down. Um, God has made sure to preserve his words so that you and me today, Dave, can talk about it now here on the podcast, right? Yeah, and I love what Geisler 
and Roach state about that idea that the doctrine of inerrancy has recent developments. In fact, we're going to show you today that the doctrine of inerrancy is grounded in the words of Christ, the words of the apostles, the words of many church historians, and, and I believe that it is articulated and clarified uh, in the Chicago Statement. Again, the doctrine of the Trinity itself was not formally laid out until 325 A.D., at the Council of Nicaea. So as different theological controversies arise, we see a response from Orthodox faith that contends for those doctrines. And it's really important, and again, to quote Geisler and Roach, they state, there is nothing wrong with being recent or rational or using apologetics. God is rational, and he has made us all rational creatures in his image. Good apologetics responds to attacks when they occur, whether a long time ago or recently. As with most major doctrines, inerrancy was not clearly formulated and articulated until it was clearly challenged. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, so, uh, so we have these presuppositions, and it's one of those things whenever we go back into history, um, if you think about just, again, we always kind of go back to John Calvin whenever he talks about um, the knowledge of God, the knowledge of self, how they're intertwined. Um, this is a presupposition of that statement. Um, God has spoken. We can know it. These things are that that that's why you have to have that multifaceted uh, nature of things. These are so this isn't anything esoteric. Um, we don't believe things because people define things because they possess the authority. The scripture has authority. Right. People have contradicted it and they have done. And then the other people have done what scripture says to do, which is to earnestly contend for the faith because what, again, people have come in by stealth and they do these things. Um, so as Protestants, again, we, you know, we can behold to the Trinity, but we don't hold to the Trinity in the same vein because we don't believe it because the Pope said so. Um, we don't believe it because the church said so. It's because we see it and we can flesh it out exegetically from Scripture alone. And this is, again, not solo Scripture, but solo Scripture done in community. These things are clearly talked about. Um, sufficient enough information to make the claim, um, you know, out of necessity because we're finite beings. Uh, even the Pope is a finite being. And uh, from the authority of Scripture alone. Um, and we don't need right. any other other way to get there. Um, so um, to to go on into this, you know, we need to define. You know, there people out there might know definition of infallibility or inerrancy, um, inspiration. Um, you know, whenever we're talking about these uh, words, we're looking back at that Second uh, Timothy three sixteen seventeen part where it says all Scripture is inspired by God. And so that word inspired, again, if you don't know, that uh, is rendered from theanoustos. God uh, aspirated, right? Or God breathed out these words. And so we need to understand that, um, and as again with Second Peter one twenty one, that you know, this wasn't the impulse of man. Um, constantly I'm talking to atheists and agnostics, and they're like, you know, God hasn't revealed himself. This is just another um, society's attempt to try to transcend themselves and posit, you know, because they're looking from a lens of the enlightenment. So, and then they anachronize, um, their lens onto way back when before this sort of type of thought was even thought out of anyway um, they're trying to posit into an idea or concept an abstract concept of god 
Um, but that's not what they're doing here is God has condescended. He has spoken um, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, um, he, or go back further to Adam. Um, God has directly condescended and talked to these people. So he breathed these, these things out. Um, and so whenever we talk about infallibility or inerrancy, you know, or just take the word inspired, um, I think the, the big thing is we need to define this. And so how are we defining what it means to be inspired and what does it mean from scripture and uh, um, inspiration. Um, I like to go to, I, we can go to Harold Lenzel because this is where you need to go. Uh, Dave used some history there talking about why this debate is important because um, he wrote a book called the battle for the Bible kind of takes you through that uh, history up to the eighties. Another really good book uh, that we've utilized in the past is uh, defending inerrancy. And that's Geisler and William Roach, which we've had on the show to talk with him before. Um, but anyway, Harold Lenzel says that inspiration may be defined as the inward work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts and minds of chosen men who then wrote the scriptures so that God would get written what he wanted. And that's sort of a, a crude way to say it, but God got written what he wanted. And then Frame, you know, comes in. Um, I like his uh, definition more succinct here that inspiration is a divine act creating an identity between a divine word and a human word. So he, basically, the inspiration is God making his voice and that human's voice identical. That's right. So uh, I really uh, yeah. enjoy the way that um, Feinberg. Uh, articulates the doctrine of inerrancy. He says that inerrancy means when all the facts are known, the scriptures and their original autographs and properly interpreted will be shown to be wholly true in everything they affirm, whether that has to do with the doctrine of morality or with social, physical, or life sciences. And I would just say that the doctrine of inerrancy essentially says that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. In other words, we base the doctrine of inerrancy in the character of God. The scripture says in Titus 1, 2, that God cannot lie. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, that God never lies. Therefore, for God in his word to say something that was contradictory or something that wasn't true would be for God to act out of character. So because scripture claims to be the anustos, God breathed, and because Peter clearly articulates that scripture came from men who were moved by the Holy Spirit of God, we can trust due to the character of God that his word has been revealed and is trustworthy, ultimately. Yeah, yeah. And so um, I know I missed most of that because I just had to go downstairs <laughs> and uh, deal with my boy. So this is kind of the uh, hard thing whenever we're apart from each other. <laughs> if I, since we're live as well, there's a there's a multifaceted thing going on with the Tag Your podcast. <laughs> well, hey, um, let's yeah. kind of jump into some yeah. of these uh, some of these other statements that yeah. we have when it comes to the doctrine of inerrancy. Uh, go ahead and, and share with us what Van Til has said. Yeah, so, you know, I, I kind of uh, laid this out in a sort of an argument sort of uh, issue here just with uh, just scholars um, throughout, um, you, know, you know, again, this is ecumenical and all that kind of stuff, too. This isn't anything um, specifically. I mean, it probably it, it is reformed. It's definitely um, consistent with that. But we get to, you know, the inspiration. Um, it's that inward work of the Holy Spirit on people. Right, that they didn't come up with this themselves is something that they were compelled to do um, because of the Holy Spirit was with them. That's what Jesus promised. Um, 
So we get that even from Jesus's teachings and everything. So we get that inspiration is divine act, uh, creating an identity between a divine word and a human word. So therefore, um, here's what Cornelius Van Til says um, in his defense of the faith. Um, he says, the argument for scripture um, as the infallible revelation of God is to all intents and purposes the same as the argument for the existence of God. And I think we hit that in the authority of scripture. So yeah. see that multifaceted fasted thing here. Um, these all play together. Um, so whenever we're talking about inerrancy, we're talking about the character of God. He does and not make thing, error. He does not lie. And so one of the things that we've seen and why this is such an important topic today is because we've seen in recent, what we would call academic Christian circles, this idea that God has spoken in such a way that everything he says in scripture is the ultimate standard and ultimately true has been come has come into question right what we have now is a split off from this 1978 chicago statement which in turn i believe is a split off from what the doctrine that scripture teaches regarding scripture itself actually states mm -hmm. in other words people will say oh yeah i believe in inerrancy but in Paul's three accounts of his Damascus Road experience, or the three accounts that Paul gives of the Damascus Road experience, look, uh, in one of these versions, Paul says the men heard, and in another version, he says they didn't understand what God said. See, there's a problem there. Yeah, or yeah. they'd go to Acts 21, and they'd say, see, Agabus came to Paul, and he said, your hands are going to be bound by the Jews. And if you look down just a little bit, you'll see that he was wrong. The Romans were the ones who bound him. So they would call into question that scripture is really inerrant, and they would redefine the term inerrancy. Mm -hmm. Winham states that it is possible to adopt the most extreme critical position and yet claim to be utterly true to the Bible. And so as we began to unpack this, we want to be consistent in the way that we deal with it. Yeah, yeah. And so we need to understand the law of non-contradiction. A cannot be A, or not A, in the same uh, time in the same sense. And so what they're declaring here is that, you know, um, they're saying that the Bible isn't an error, or basically here in these contradictions, these things contradict. They're making an absolute contradiction claim, um, saying that they contradict, but then putting it off in a world of a marketplace of ideas of what those mean and saying that you can't harmonize those which then just becomes absurd because then they're making an absolute claim. <laughs> so see what yeah. happens um, whenever you don't try to, uh, to say, again, let God be true, though every man a liar. Um, these things do harmonize. These things do objectively tell the truth about these situations um, that Dave just um, gave us. Now it's ours to do the work. Who, where's the problem? Is the problem with Scripture or is the problem with you? And that's, again, where we talked about in the sufficiency and the clarity issue. That's where they play in there. So whenever you have a problem with one, you're going to have a problem somewhere else with another one of these attributes. And so that's why it's important. But, you know, um, just because you can't put two and two together doesn't mean the Bible's wrong. Um, it's authoritative. You know, again, we're, we're talking about this, you know, which circle are you going to join, your brain or God's brain? That's <laughs> right. And, you know, and, and which again, circle? Uh, we need to recognize that man's autonomous reasoning and logic usurping scripture is foreign to the way that the prophets, the apostles, and Christ himself 
even dealt with scripture. And so as we began to kind of unpack what I think is the best evidence for the doctrine of inerrancy, we're going to look to scripture itself. We're going to look at some of the words of Christ. We're going to look at the way the apostles dealt with the truthfulness of scripture. We're going to look at church history and what the church has always believed about the doctrine of inerrancy. And finally, we'll kind of begin to crystallize this and come to a point of conclusion by noting some of the statements by those who are the framers of the doctrine of inerrancy, J.I. Packer, R.C. Sproul, and uh, Norman Geisler. Yeah. So, um, yeah, do you want to go ahead and just kind of jump right into Jesus Christ? And what yeah, we can do says, that. Or, um, and, or uh, I mean, if you want to finish this it. little little, um, yeah, yeah, continue. little continue. logical progression in here. Um, yeah, so, um, it's his inspired word he gave people. Um, and the way that he wanted to give people um, their words or his words. Um, and so what we also need to recognize, you know, uh, people might see like, okay, well, never God spoke um, directly to a prophet. Okay, that's that, that didn't err. But we're talking about the person who then speaks for God or writes for God. Um, and so then we get to the scripture. So we're talking about God's word over here, his spoken word. Um, but we need to talk about scriptures. Why are we, especially Baptists, so staunch on the scriptures? Um, it's not just the Baptists, it's the Presbyterians, because I'm going to quote <laughs> Cornelius Van Til again. Um, but see, the, this goes into the necessity. It had to be um, written down. Um, there's a reason for it. And Cornelius Van Til puts it best. Um, he says, um, it may be asserted that sinful man would naturally want to destroy a supernatural revelation that portrays his sin and shame and tells him that he is helpless and undone. This is out of accord with the pride that is a prime mark of the sinner. Hence, the necessity for inscripturization of the God-given post-lapsarian supernatural revelation of God to man. So, basically, the inscripturation is there. It's written down. Um, copies are thrown out there. We can read, and this again, this is why whenever we had that um, that debate um, on the, uh, oh, well, it was uh, Rager, <laughs> whenever yeah. we're talking about, he's talking about the King James version of the Bible, and he would seemed appalled whenever it was like, no, our side was, you know, Travis was like, you know, the, you know, wh- wh- where's the Bible? And he's like, it's in manuscripts. <laughs> and it's like, that's right. You know, we don't have that, especially in the New Testament. Uh, we don't have that central, um, that centralized uh, power house over the word of God, it was thrown out there. And we have multiple witnesses uh, that we can um, look at um, where words are missing or letters are missing, where something's misspelled, whatever. We can deal with grammatical issues. Um, It's there, and it was there because that was the best way that God could, you know, preserve his word in a fallen sinful world for fallen sinful people. Um, and that's whenever you get into the debates with uh, James White and Bart Ehrman on this issue, um, because Bart Ehrman just wants like he I think what he wants is he wants a book that falls from the sky in in Monty Python fashion. And yeah. that's not what we get. And the Christians are one or we're we're dealing with it and it's fine um, again. But it all comes down to your presupposition and wherever you dump off to you get to be the one that puts God on the dock. That's, you know, that's a problem. That's why Bart Ehrman is where he is today, because he was a Christian. He got into textual criticism. He turned on his autonomous brain 
um, and became the judge over God. And look at him now, he's off. And that's, that's what's sad. But, you know, um, it's an errant, it's written down, it's God's word, no matter if uh, he speaks to a prophet and then this prophet in turn speaks to people um, such as, you know, Israel, such as Paul um, talking to congregations. But that also goes down to whenever Moses wrote down um, the book of the covenant and put it in the ark, those words that were written by Moses are God's words. Um, the words that go into the New Testament, we got to understand that um, there's parallels. Uh, prophets were covenant spokesmen. Um, and if you look at the way Paul talked about himself, how he was a minister of the gospel, he is a spokesman of the gospel. What is the gospel? Is the new covenant written and 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 it's was given to us by Christ's blood and his body and stuff like that. So we got this new covenant, we got new covenant documents, just like they had the old covenant documents, because why everything is related to redemption, speaking to man and uh giving him the way that he should go and and what he should should believe. So, you know, the this is we need to understand like why the Bible, why the Bible, why the Bible, why not just God speaking? Because we see people today, um, God speaks to you. Um, but the Bible, you know, that, that definitely gets over what the Bible says. Again, you went autonomous. Um, and so now you're going to be in a marketplace of ideas in autonomous land, and you're not going to have any sort of ground, um, for anything that you say. Um, the only thing that you might say, right, is because I see it in scripture and go, well, you're right there. But then again, I have the objective, um, standard of God and his omniscience, um, and his speaking and condescending and speaking to me through the scripture to be able to tell you if you're right or wrong. So right thus with all this, you know, there we have inerrancy. And then, then this is where we can act out of that. So if you want to get into, um, we do need to get into the more of the scriptural basis because, um, you know, we can, we can hammer Timothy and Peter all, or, uh, yeah, Timothy and Peter all day. But the thing is, that's not it. It's written all over the place, um, and so we just got to deal with it that way. So, Dave, take it away. Yeah, so I just want to begin by stating that, you know, the doctrine of inerrancy is not some inerrancy that's out there, some doctrine that's just out there that's ungraspable and that the church never dealt with. Again, the word inerrancy was formulated as a result of what we would see as uh, very much a move from the orthodox position of Scripture. In fact, uh, uh, Norman Geisler and Dr. Moeller quote very clearly in some of their works that even in even those who believe in the errancy of Scripture would note that historically the church has believed in the doctrine of inerrancy. Now, uh, I want to begin by kind of unpacking this idea according to Christ, according to the apostles, according to church history, and according to the framers of the Chicago Statement. So, mm-hmm. um, I believe very clearly that one's view of inerrancy must be consistent with the view that Christ held of Scripture. In other words, if Christ is the ultimate standard, we want to have the same standard for Scripture, the same understanding of Scripture that Jesus Christ himself held. Now, here's the thing that we can consistently see throughout the Gospels. We can see that Jesus believed the Old Testament was true, that it historically occurred, and that it actually happened as was recorded. In fact, I would tell you that Jesus didn't have inerrant copies of the Bible, but he believed that the inerrant word of God was preserved 
in the copies of the manuscripts that he had access to. Uh, for example, Jesus believes, and again, his teaching and the accuracy of his teaching depends on the fact that Scripture was true. Uh, if you look at, at Luke eleven fifty one, he affirms that Abel was an actual historic figure. He says in Matthew 24, 37 to 39, that Noah was a real person. Uh, in John 7, 22, and in Matthew 10, 15, he refers to Sodom and Gomorrah as actual historical places. Mm -hmm. In Matthew 19, he refers to Adam and Eve and even quotes what Moses says uh, when he says that two become one and what, man, what God has made one, no man should separate. Yeah. Jesus is so clear in affirming that David was the author of many of the Psalms and Solomon was a historical figure. And I love in Matthew 12, 39 to 41, and in Luke 11, 29, 30, and 32, Jesus declares that Jonah actually spent three days in the belly of the whale. Yeah. I mean, Jesus refers to, and again, that's just a short survey of the numerous examples that Jesus relies on as historical facts. In fact, Jesus relies on the teachings of the Old Testament as true statements in such a way so that we could compare it to someone in modern time referring to World War II, JFK, Andrew Jackson, or, or even the Great Depression. Like Jesus believed these things in the Old Testament really took place. Yeah, the, I mean, on the other place, side of that, though, yeah. just to put in there is he didn't just believe him. And that was that he held men accountable. Bingo. And that is yeah. found so clearly in Luke chapter 11, verses 50 to 51. In fact, Jesus says very clearly there that this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world from the blood of Abel to the mm. blood of Zechariah who is killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for all of it. I mean, yeah, so Jesus if Abel was, was a real person that bled real blood, bingo. Who so was, who's the daddy? <laughs> who was real? And, yeah. and in fact, Jesus is affirming the entire mm -hmm. Old Testament canon and all of its teachings. I mean, Jesus makes so clear in John 10, 35, that not the smallest letter not the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law. Excuse me, that's Matthew 5, 18. Mm -hmm. And in John 10, 35, he says the scriptures cannot be broken. Now, here's the thing. Objectively, if the scriptures can't be broken, then they have been objectively true. So again, the ultimate standard for what we believe about the Old Testament and about scripture should be consistent with what Jesus believed. And that would include the whole compass of things like Leviticus 19, where sodomy is declared a sin. Jesus was clear on that. I mean, every time someone tells you Jesus didn't speak clearly on the sin of homosexuality, go to John 10 or 1035. The scriptures mm -hmm. can't be broken. I mean, Jesus shows himself unduly sensitive about undermining beliefs that were common in his day. Right? If there was a false belief that was common in his day, Jesus would correct it. Yeah. Notice he never corrects the Pharisees and Sadducees for their view of Scripture. He corrects them in Mark for their holding to the traditions of men and not Scripture. Yeah, and so we see that kind of played out 
And that's why the Reformation happens. So it happens again, re- you know, <laughs> it repeats itself, right? <laughs> Amen. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and so, again, if our ultimate standard, our ultimate example is Jesus Christ in his view of Scripture, we should hold very tightly mm-hmm. to the objective truth of the Old Testament. Now, I want to say this. A lot of times individuals will critique this idea and say, well, Jesus was just accommodating the views of his age. Jesus wasn't accommodating the views of his age. Jesus says over and over again, you have been told, but I say to you, Jesus spoke with a greater authority than the common views of his day and the common teachings of religious people on scripture. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, if basically, you know, you're, you're saying, and so what we really need to talk about, because we've, we've already talked about this issue, but there are those red letter Christians. Yeah. We've dealt with, uh, again, Philip that whenever, and you can go back on that show where we talked about domestic violence, um, where he says, well, doesn't the Bible teach this? And this is what you should teach as a Christian. And he said in public to the city of Springfield on KY3 News well, you know, if that's in the Bible, but then Jesus doesn't say anything about it, I'll say, I say to hell with that part. John ten thirty five. the scriptures can't yeah. be broken. Yeah, and that's so the thing is, so here, said, yeah, yeah, Jesus, Jesus said that those are, you know, those scriptures that he's saying to hell with that part are real scriptures. They're still in play. They don't go yeah, away. And, and so, and you so, know, and this is why inerrancy is so important is whenever you go to the venue. When you go to uh, a lot of these uh, liberal, you know, a lot of them are Christian church type places. There's a lot of good ones, but whenever you get into that, there's a lot of liberal stuff going on, and that's the stuff they're going to say, and it's because of this inerrancy debate. Yeah, Bobby, because, again, as we sat down with Phil, he didn't believe that God had clearly spoken, right? Mm-hmm. So when he says that, he's, again, telling you, well, God's word can't be trusted. Mm-hmm. And anyone who would say, well, well, Scripture doesn't, doesn't say enough on this subject, they're undermining the doctrine of inerrancy because they're undermining the doctrine of sufficiency of Scripture, right? And yeah. so this is a, an extremely important thing. But, but not only did Christ articulate so clearly his view of Scripture, the apostles articulate their view of Scripture so clearly. And this clearly. is also, I mean, and we got to say, this is also grounded, though. In Christ, yes. so whenever That's so we will right. always go back to uh, John seventeen, where he prays to the Father that again for the apostles, he starts out with the apostles to sancti- sanctify them in truth, because His Word is truth. He he prays right. to the Father and says, "You gave me words, and I gave it to them, and they have believed me, and so they have believed you because of me." And he gets you know it's that circular um, language of authority, and he That's prays right. for the apostles. And so then he is also telling the apostles, if I don't go away, the comforter is not going to come. And whenever he says that comforter comes, when he goes away, the comforter, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit will lead them and guide them in the truth. And so then, so we go from Christ again, so we can go from Christ backwards. We can go from Christ to the, you know, we just went from Christ backwards to the, the, the fathers and the prophets, just like Hebrews said. And then as Hebrews one says again, that, Christ um, is the the final revelation, the final words, right? The final speaker. And then we see that Christ sends the Holy Spirit, right? And then 
He's also prayed to the Father. Christ is going to get what he wants. And so then we see the apostles. And go ahead, Dave. Yeah, and so one of the first things that we would recognize, anyone who reads the New Testament would recognize that there's a great deal of the Old Testament quoted in the New Testament. In Mm -hmm. fact, about a tenth of the content of the entire New Testament is citations of the Old Testament. I mean, if you open up your Bible and read the Gospel of Matthew, you'll see right away, boom, 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 there's all these quotations of the Old Testament. I mean, here we are in the Christmas season, right? And what do we do? So often we go back to the prophet of Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah. So, so often we go back to the prophecy that Christ was going to come. That was an objective declaration of something that would happen. And as Christians, we have historically always believed that that objective that that statements on those many statements in the Old Testament spoke of an objective actuality that was going to occur, was going to be actualized in the New Testament. I mean, the birth of Christ is prophesied right away. And what is the Mm -hmm. first thing that Matthew does? He begins to unpack the lineage of Christ. Mm -hmm. Those people really lived according to Matthew, right? Yeah, they did. There were 1,600 citations of the Old Testament and the New Testament. So when Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 to 16, that all scripture is God-breathed, right? He has a belief about the Old Testament scriptures. But actually, I love what Wayne Grudem contends in his systematic theology when he says, like, if you harmonize the ideas of Paul, Paul isn't just writing about the Old Testament in saying all scripture, all graphe, is to opnustos, right? Mm-hmm. He is actually making a comment on himself because he wrote in 1 Corinthians 14, 37 that what he was writing was a command from the Lord. Mm-hmm. I mean, you already quoted 2 Peter 1, 21, but Peter is saying no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but from God. Yeah, and then at the end of it, and the, the Holy at, Spirit. Yeah, and at the end Before, of Peter, yeah. again, he says, Paul said hard things, right? that people distort to uh, to their destruction, right? Just and that's like where he compares scripture. Yes. And that's where he compares Paul's writings to scripture. And there, yeah. there it's not scripture and what Paul says. It's a combining of the authority of Paul with the old Testament scriptures as well. So and again, when, yeah. yeah. And when you synthesize that with what Paul wrote in Titus one, two, that God never lies in Hebrews mm-hmm. six, 18, that it's impossible for God to lie. They believed that not only the Old Testament was an objective revelation that was clearly and accurately preserved, what they were saying had the same weight of Mm -hmm. the Old Testament, right? Paul knew what he was saying when he quoted himself and then wrote, I'm writing you commands from the Lord. He was setting his statements beside what God had already revealed. I mean, it's clear from the use of the Old Testament and by the way the Old Testament authors harmonize each other and internally use the Old Testament that what they believed about what they were writing and what had been written was objectively true. Mm -hmm. For God to make a mistake or for God to err would be for God to lie, and God doesn't lie. Again, Scripture 
is authoritative. God is authoritative. Why is scripture authoritative? Because God is authoritative. That's right. So again, Robert, we come back to that. If you talking about inerrancy, talking about these things and arguing for them is the same thing as arguing for the existence of God. And that produces kind of a neat little discussion because it does then what happened after the apostles, the apostles successors. Well, if you read Polycarp, if you read Jerome, if you read the Didache, if mm-hmm. you read uh, if you read the letter of Clement to the church at Corinth, from the you know if you read uh, Clement of Rome, right to the to the church of the Corinthians, right, they would quote scripture, right? They would quote not only Old Testament teachings, but they would quote New Testament teachings, right? And mm-hmm. they would pair them together. Now, this always, again, produces a really interesting discussion, right, Uh, about what about the Apocrypha, right? It's always going to come up, right? Why do we not believe the Apocrypha? Well, again, in 697, at the Council of Carthage, the the canon was set in place. Now, the Catholic Church didn't undo that until the 1500s, 1553, at the Council of Trent, where they added the Apocrypha. Yeah. Jesus was familiar with the Apocryphal li- literature. He never quotes it once in the Gospels. Yeah. The New Testament authors never quote the Apocrypha, right? Mm-hmm. They did not believe it as Scripture. And the Jews, and as, as Dr. White says, the closer you got to the Jewish beliefs, right, when it came to a New Testament, or excuse me, to a post-New Testament author, to a, a post-New Testament church father, the closer you got to one who is familiar with Judaism, the more you see that they recognize that the apocryphal literature wasn't scripture, right? Yeah. So I, I love what Robert D. Proust says. Um, he writes that the Bible as the word of God, inerrant and su- of supreme divine authority, was a conviction held by all Christians and Christian teachers throughout the first 1700 years of church history. This fact has not really ever been contested by many scholars. So uh, what I want to do next, Adam, is just kind of survey a few statements by early church fathers. Um, For example, Augustine, he wrote very clearly that those books which are called canonical have I learned to give honor so that I believe most firmly that no author in these books ever made an error. Mm -hmm. Augustine writing in the 4th century, is is stating that the Old Testament and New Testament, right, he's writing post-Council of Carthage, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, excuse me, I apologize on that. He's writing around that same time of the Council of Carthage, right? In fact, uh, uh, Athanasius would have written in six nine, uh, 397, or three, 367, <laughs> his festal letter where he says, this is scripture. But Augustine, again, writing Post, I apologize, I, I made a mistake in that. Augustine's writing post-Council of Carthage, yeah. post a statement on what is canon. Now again, uh, just to quote another scholar, uh, when we think about what canonicity is, right, uh, one of the best pieces on that is, of course, the, um, uh, gosh, uh, the book that I gave you, I apologize, I'm struggling with his name, Uh uh, uh, well, I, Which I, I apologize. Uh, the one Archer. on, on, no, no, the one <laughs> oh. on canon. Um, oh, Kruger. 
Yeah, the Kruger. book I gave you. Kruger. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Wait, wait. I let you borrow my copy. Other of, okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Michael um, Kruger. Yeah, yeah, but Kruger talked about an extrinsic and an intrinsic model for canonicity. In other words, canon jumps out. That is the mm-hmm. intrinsic model, right? Yeah. Uh, again, that intrinsic model makes it really clear that the test for canon, which are apolicity, was the book written by an apostle or a close associate of apostle? Yeah. Universality, was the book widely distributed? And yeah. orthodoxy, did its teachings come consistently? Those elements are going to be, again, central to understanding how the church viewed scripture. I mean, uh, Jerome wrote, when you are really instructed in divine scriptures and have realized that its laws and testimonies are the bonds of truth, then you can contend with your adversary. Jerome, Augustine, Thomas Aquinas all believed in the objective truth of scripture. They might not have used the word inerrant. But they like grounded themselves in the idea that what scripture recorded was the ultimate standard. It yeah. was true. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've not quoted Luther yet. Now I want to make sure that I give Luther his uh, his due. Uh, Luther writes this: "This is our foundation, where the holy scriptures establish something that must be believed." Luther is stating that if scripture says something, that's what you believe. Not, mm-hmm. I feel like this isn't true. No, no. What is recorded and what is preserved in Scripture is the ultimate authority. Mm-hmm. And then just to do, I mean, a quick drive-by of Calvin, he says in the Institutes that Scripture is the sure and infallible record, that Scripture is in is the inerring standard. He says elsewhere that Scripture is the inerring certainty. He calls Scripture infallible oracles. Uh, again, people like Warfield, Kuiper, Pavning, Burkauer, A.T. Robertson, all affirmed that Scripture was objectively true. If yeah. Scripture said it, God said it. Yeah. And so this idea that Scripture is inerrant isn't a recent construct. It's a belief that has been decreed by Christ. It has been decreed by the apostles. It has been held to throughout church history. And it was articulated in 1978 because there were all these attacks on what it means for something to be objectively true. Mm -hmm. And so because it was necessary to make a statement, a statement was made. Again, we can see this in the Nashville statement, in the Danver statement. People are dealing with, Orthodox theologians are dealing with contemporary theological issues looking back at scripture and church history to articulate an objective standard. Yeah. And I mean, like just thinking about this church history issue, you know, we, we have like that landmarkism type thing. And I think we see uh, that um, for some reason people want to see like one group of people um, kind of zeitgeisting throughout history from the apostles to now that we can go like, they're the true church whatever they were teaching and stuff like that. And no confessions ever that has ever come out said that. I mean, explicitly in the London Baptist confession, you're not supposed to have an implicit faith um, in that sense. But you know what we need to recognize is there's always a mixture of truth and error with people, Um, local congregations, um, pastors, elders, celebrity, rock star pastors, whatever. But we need to recognize that there, the teaching survives. 
Yes, and, and with love, the wheat and weeds idea, you're going to have yeah. heresies survive. Um, but how do you tell the difference between heresy and uh, orthodoxy? And that's, you got to have a standard. If you don't have a standard, if you don't have the inerrancy of Scripture, then you can't tell the difference between heresy and orthodoxy. Yeah, and uh, just a quote from Geisler and Roach, the church fathers who lived in the first few centuries of the Christian church provided some 19,368 citations of the text of the Gospels alone, right? Mm -hmm. Justin Martyr quotes the New Testament some 268 times in his writing. Arrhenius, Arrhenius, 1,038 times. Clement of Alexandria, 1,017, right? Tertullian, he's quoting scripture some 3,822 times. That's just the New Testament, right? Yeah, and I think it's really awesome if you want to get it. Yeah, if you want to get evidential with it, um, even if we didn't have like the copies that we have of manuscripts, I think we pretty much already had the old, we have the New Testament contained in quotations from people like that. Yes. So, yeah, yeah, we have the manuscripts to back it up, to back up that claim, because that would be what would need to be the, that's what their sermons, their writings would presuppose would be that manuscript tradition. Yes. Um, but if we didn't have that manuscript tradition, we would have all the readings of the New Testament just in writings. Um, you know, that, that'd be like tertiary writings. Yes. Yeah. And so that's like even more a blessing. Yes, that is not an argument you should use. So if you're Frank Turek, stop it. <laughs> just <laughs> stop it at that. But I mean, it's a wonderful, awesome idea. Um, the faithfulness of God um, in his word and superintending his word, um, where you need to take people to, you need people to meet God through Christ, right? Not this other way around, but you know, it's an awesome tidbit of information to know that from church history, from say that, that era of time, we are, we would have the new Testament in any way. If the manuscript traditions from the dispersion of people writing in um, low-lit rooms and scribes and and, uh, having the problems we have um, because of humans, we still have it. And again, it's miracle um, that we have it. It's God preserving his word. And so that's just one tidbit more of information that God has preserved his word. He hasn't done it in some mystical, um, you know, thrown down from heaven way. He hasn't done it by like re-inspiring Erasmus and all this kind of stuff at some crucial time in history or else his word would die. Um, He has done it in and throughout, like his inerrant word is threaded throughout history. And it's, it's like, unless if you're looking, unless if you have those presuppositions given you by the Holy spirit, you're not going to see it and discern, but just one of those things to let you know, we have it. We have it yeah. in their quotations. We have it in manuscript form. It's beautiful. And to kind of um, wrap it up, you know, what has happened recently and why the Chicago statement was so important is people were redefining what it meant for Scripture to be infallible, mm-hmm. right? And that's why the statement on inerrancy was written, right? Yeah. Now we see people trying to manipulate the doctrine of inerrancy, right? Uh we have more people redefining that than ever before. But then the doctrine of inerrancy is fundamental to all other doctrines, right? Yeah. Inerrancy is foundational for all other essential Christian doctrines. I mean, if Scripture cannot speak clearly, 
then God's can't then God can't speak clearly. And therefore, mm-hmm. you have no doctrine of the Trinity if you don't have an inerrant Bible. You have no doctrine of justification. You have no doctrine of ecclesiology if God cannot speak clearly, authoritatively, yeah. and sufficiently, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and God, we needed to hear from God in order to know these things, right? Because yeah. God is omniscient and knows everything. Therefore, we need to base our knowledge because we're not omniscient upon the knowledge of someone who is. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to, to end it, we just really got to think about it. You know, um, going back to the garden, go back before sin entered the world, before rebellion and all that fact. Just go back to creation. Adam wakes up. He's conscious. You know, they had the law written on their hearts. But God wanted a relationship. He didn't just make a world, turn the machine on, and let it run. And he was like, I've implanted it in my humans, and so they're going to act it out. Um, no, he made a relationship with them, for one. Um, and in this relationship, we got to understand that Adam didn't just, because he was righteous, he just didn't do everything righteously because of everything inside of him. Or that, you know, what what surrounded him, like he was in some sort of enlightenment um, philosophy type of idea where he was trying to transcend himself um, to God, but God condescended down to him. So, you know, just Van Til, again, says it best that to understand God's general revelation in the universe, or right, it was imperative for man to um, that he see this revelation in relationship to a higher level with respect to the final destiny of man in the universe. Even then, or if then, even man in paradise could not read nature right, only in connection with and in light of the supernatural positive revelation. How much more is this true of man after the fall? So Adam didn't even, uh, like, he couldn't exist and live without an inerrant, authoritative, clear, sufficient, necessary word of God. And then what yeah. are, why, why are we expecting that we do? And again, in, in our modern controversy, what we have is a attack on the clarity of Scripture, mm-hmm. which is an turn attack on inerrancy. And an sufficiency. I mean, it's an attack on all of it. Yeah, it's an attack yeah. on all of it. And it's sad. So, it, the doctrine of inerrancy, man, I can't wait to do the debate. Uh, I, I think we've kind of covered uh, all the bases on it. Again, mm-hmm. there's uh, obviously some textual issues that we could get into, uh, such as textual variants. Uh, we don't have time for that today. Certainly, uh, we probably want to dedicate a whole show to textual variants next year. Yeah, that'd be Sometimes. fun. A little, uh, yeah, yeah, get into uh, um, some criticism and all that kind of stuff from a presuppositional mindset. That would uh, be awesome. So, but yeah, I, I think we have wrapped up this series really well, and uh, I, I'm really excited about uh, the debate. I want to encourage you to share the debate uh, as an event. I want to encourage you to come to the debate because we'll talk about this, de- about this issue in more depth. I know that Phil has uh, spoken about it on his podcast, and uh, I know that you, know, you might hear some of the same things, certainly, uh, compared to what we've talked about today. But that's going to be okay because we'll get a little bit deeper on it as well. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And so to end this podcast, just to put that nice little conclusion, we've done uh, apologetics here anyway. Um, but just to sort of to end it, I want to end, uh, end it on like more of a personal uh, challenge to anybody watching and listening to this. Um, 
because of the inerrancy of Scripture. Because God has spoken authoritatively. He has spoken necessarily, clearly, sufficiency, um, without error, right? Um, this is the personal thing. And again, I'm just, I love Cornelius Van Til. That's why uh, in this last episode, I just, I opened up the, uh, the breach here of Cornelius Van Til here. Um, but the Bible, as the infallibly inspired revelation of God to sinful man, stands before us as the light in terms of which all the facts of the created universe must be interpreted. All of finite existence, natural and redemptive um, functions in relations in relation to the one all-inclusive plan that is in the mind of God. Whatever insight man is to have into this pattern of activity of God, he must attain by looking at all his objects of research in the light of scripture. And so with me, with Dave, with you, with uh, pastors and elders, um, this is what we need to understand. We don't know reality as it really is. We don't want to know reality as it really is because of sin. But this is why God has given us scripture. Um, it's, it is those things that we've been talking about, those attributes. And so let us move. You know, we do live and move and have our being in God. And so let's move like it. Let's start acting like it. Let's start thinking and not just uh, arguing with the fool and becoming a fool, but let's listen to people. And instead of like finding that neutral spot to try to talk to them, um, let's, let's tell them the gospel. Let's tell them, no, no, no. The reality of things is really this interpreted from what God said and what he created it to be. And I think uh, that's basically it is the, why are we debating this? It's because man wants to be autonomous. If you can find one, one little particles room of autonomy, man will take it and man will build his kingdom there and then shut out everything else around him. That is sin. That is the reality of the case. That's what we preach on Sundays. Now are we practicing what we preach? And so let's practice what we preach. Let's believe God Let's say that he's true, even though I'm a liar or Dave's a liar or our pastors, whatever, are liars. God is true. And let's live um, consistently with our profession. So I think that was a good uh, ender to, <laughs> to that. But yes, with hey, uh, brother, yeah, I so you appreciate you. It's been fun. Another year of podcasting has mm -hmm. come to a conclusion. Yes, so we'll say goodbye to 2019 and hello 2020 next time that uh, we log in together, Dave. That's right. Yeah, so I guess with that said, this is, uh, wait, I'm Ray Ray and... This is Dave. And this is the Tag Year Podcast, Soli. Deo. Gloria. Gloria.